Okay, let's begin with a word of prayer this evening. Lord, again, we thank you for loving us. We know that there are so many things about us that you know that would make us unlovable in your sight. And yet, for the sake of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, you do love us. And his righteousness is imputed to us because we come to you through faith in him. We thank you that our sins have been laid upon him and that he died upon the cross to bear away the penalty due to them. We thank you as well that he rose from the dead powerfully and that he now reigns over all of creation as the Lord. We thank you that his spirit has been shed upon the church and that spirit has come into our lives and made us new people. We thank you for the enlightenment of the spirit the encouragement of that spirit and the guidance we receive through the word that the spirit inspired. We ask you to Make us faithful students of that word tonight as we study. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're in Hebrews, the fifth chapter tonight. And um, just like every chapter that we study, this is a great chapter of the Bible. There's so many good things we can pick up on and learn here. Uh, I'm not going to promise to get through the whole chapter. I will feel good if I can get through the first ten verses because they're just chock full. So let me begin by reminding you what we ended with last time from the <clears throat> conclusion of chapter 4. The author there tells us, brings to a conclusion and to a head a line of thought that says, because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, since we have a Savior who has ascended on high and has come before the very presence of God to minister for us as a priest, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, we should hold fast our confession, because this priest is not the kind who might not be touched with the feeling of our infirmity. Indeed, at every point in which we are tempted, he too has been tempted, and yet successfully he endured the temptation, he did so without sin. And therefore we can be bold in coming unto him, whereas in the old covenant people were kept at a distance from the Holy of Holies. <clears throat> they could not approach God um, without reservation. Now the author says we can boldly come before the very presence of God because we um, have received mercy and grace to help us in time of our need from Christ. And now chapter 5 begins. Because, the author says, <clears throat> pardon, because every high priest being taken from among men is appointed for men and things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin, who can bear gently with the ignorant and erring, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity, and by reason thereof is bound, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sin. And no man takes the honor unto himself, for when he is called of God, even as was Aaron. So Christ also glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that spake unto him, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who in the days of his flesh, having offered up prayers and supplications, was strong crying and tears, unto him that was able to save him from death, and having been heard for his godly fear, though he was a son, yet learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became unto all them that obey him the author of eternal salvation, named of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that's part of God's word. Before I get into verse 1 and begin expounding the development of the author's thought, I want to make a, a more general observation about a grammatical point that has historical significance in the first four verses. In the Greek, uh, the verbs, most of the verbs, as I recall, in the first four verses describing the function and the office of the high priest, the verbs are in the present tense. Now, that could have very little 
significance because the present tense might be used simply to indicate this is the axiomatic truth about the high priest. This is the generalization. High priest does this, high priest does that sort of thing. However, the continuation, you know, just keeps driving home if you're reading it in the Greek, this present tense, present tense, present tense, seems to suggest, and a number of commentators agree with me on this, that the author is probably thinking of the Levitical um, functions, the Levitical system, as still being in operation. He's not talking about something which, it used to be this way, it used to be this way. He's talking about something that's going on. And what is the historical importance of that? I think that's a grammatical point, it's just all these present tense verbs. But, you know, that's, for a good biblical detective, something of an important clue. If they're in the present tense, and the author is not, as I think all of us would, thinking of the Levitical system as something past, but very vivid, very really going on right now, then this book was written before what? The destruction of the Levitical system when Jerusalem fell in AD 70. Okay. <clears throat> Not a watertight argument, but I think fairly strong uh, supporting evidence that this book is pre-80-70. Okay, that's my general point. Now let's go back to verse 1, look at the theological content of this. For every high priest being taken from among men is appointed for men and things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. What is the prerequisite for every high priest, according to the author here? The prerequisite is that he share humanity, involving feeling the susceptibility to human weakness and temptation. Every high priest must be taken from among men, and therefore Christ had to become incarnate. Christ could not be our high priest if he were not human. Because high priest, as it is stated here in general terms, every high priest is taken from among men. Only someone chosen from among men would be fit to represent his fellow men to God. The angels can't do that. An angel could never be our savior. And an animal, I think we probably all take that for granted, an animal could never be our savior. Notice how I snuck it in on you. I said, we all take that for granted. But do we? We probably do. But the people living in that day may not have, because you see, for years and years, animals were their saviors, weren't they? Who was sacrificed for them? Bulls and goats. But now we learn that the savior is going to have to be like us, human. Specifically, not an angel. In Exodus 28.1, which we won't take the time to look up, but I'll just remind you. In Exodus 28.1, we read that the priests of the Old Testament had to be peers with those whom they represented. The commandment is that they are to be chosen from among the children of Israel. You cannot represent Israel before God if you're not an Israelite. Likewise here, you cannot represent any human before God if you're not truly human yourself. Moreover, in this verse, we read that the high priest is appointed. Notice, every high priest being taken from among men is appointed for men. Now that's in the passive in the Greek, indicating something that the high priest has done to him rather than something he does actively. Understand the difference between an active and a passive verb. Um, when the doctor sticks me with a needle, I'm being passive. Now, I may the result may be that I get real active when he sticks me with a needle, but the being stuck is passive. And so passive means it's done to you. It's very important that we see that a high priest cannot take it upon himself to be the high priest. He must be appointed. He is passive in this. It's an office which comes about not through his self-designation, not through his own ambition, a point that will be reinforced in verse 4 down there, and no man takes the honor unto himself, but when he is called of God, even as was Aaron. And so the office of high priest comes from God, and since it comes from God, it calls for humble service, not for pride, and certainly not for a mercenary attitude that, uh, you know, what's in this for me? 
if I can be the cultic leader of the people here, if I can be the religious leader. So, we learn that a high priest must be human, he must be appointed of God, and then thirdly, the author says in this verse, the high priest functions as man's representative, quote, in relation to God. That is, the high priest represents man before God, not before other men. The high priest is not a mediator between man and man. He's a mediator from the human race, from men, to God, and things pertaining to God. And here I think we're to recall the Old Testament high priest, particularly as that high priest went into the holiest place, the Holy of Holies, in the sanctuary or the tabernacle, once a year on the Day of Atonement, and there he ministered for the people before the Ark of the Covenant, where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt upon the mercy seat. That is to say, the high priest's work was oriented toward God. And then, what is the particular job of the high priest? Understanding that he represents those who are human, having been appointed to that task by God and operates in a godly direction, oriented toward the things of God, what is it a high priest must do? You tell me. That's right. He must offer gifts and sacrifices. But you see, if we only say that, we don't distinguish biblical religion from other false faiths. Now, it's all right for Pat to say that. I, I think since we all will add the qualifiers that I'm going to force you to say explicitly in a moment here, we're sure that she understands that, so we let that go. But you know, the author of Hebrews here wants to make it real point. The high priest doesn't just offer gifts. What else has to be said? Gifts and sacrifices for sin, that's right, to make atonement. What's the difference? Well, you see, in pagan religions, there are high priests that make sacrifices and, and offer gifts to God to buy them off, to bargain with God. To say, God, give us a, a good year of crops and uh, we'll give you this child for a sacrifice. Or we'll, you know, offer some other kind of gift that may not be as gruesome as that, but the fact is it's a bartering arrangement. But here we are reminded that the high priest of the Hebrew religion offered gifts and sacrifices for the purposes for the purpose of sin or in view of man's sinfulness. The purpose of these offerings is explicitly for sin so that the office of high priest deals with the radical problem of man's guilt before God. A good illustration of that is Leviticus 16.16. 16. Turn back to that momentarily. Leviticus 16.16. 16. The 16th chapter of Leviticus deals with um, the annual day of atonement and the sacrifice made on that day by the high priest. And verse 16 says, He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions, even all their sins. And so shall he do for the tent of the meeting that dwells within the midst of their uncleanness. Why does he offer the sacrifice? You see how it's reinforced for their uncleanness, their transgressions, indeed, for all of their sins. That was the job of the high priest. Okay. The office of Hebrews then has reminded us of the purpose, the qualification for the office. In verse 2, he now tells us how the high priest carries out that function, how he is to deal with those whom he represents. Verse 2 says, Who can bear gently with the ignorant and erring, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity? And by reason thereof is bound as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifice for sin. Uh, you might want to go back to verse 15 to be reminded of this truth, that we don't have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but is one who in all points is tempted like we are. A high priest needs to sympathize with those whom he represents. 
high priest was not an impersonal functionary, some kind of occult leader who could do his job, if you will, without emotion, without concern or care for his people. The high priest was to sympathize with those for whom he ministered. Of course, we see in this, as many of the reformers did, um, a real indictment of the Roman Catholic priesthood of the Middle Ages, that had become such a business transaction that uh, people could perform their priestly duties without even knowing their people, their names, caring in the slightest for them. The purpose of being a high priest, though, is to be compassionate. Verse 15 of chapter 4 has said that. And now we're told in verse in chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, that the high priest can deal gently and must deal gently with those he represents because he himself is beset with weakness. What is the source of the gentle treatment that the high priest is to give the people? He's experienced the same thing himself. And I told you before, it's worth repeating, the word sympathy literally means to feel the same thing as someone else. Sympathos, it means to have the same pathos or feeling as someone else does, to share that feeling. And it comes over through another etymology into English as compassion, to have the same passion with someone else, the same feeling as someone else. And so the gentle treatment that comes from the high priest arises from a community of weakness. But now, the author in chapter 5, we need to make clear, is referring to the common experience of weakness arising not simply from human nature, but from the depravity of sinful human nature. And how do we know that? Well, because he goes on to say in verse 5, or excuse me, in verse 3, that the high priest has to first offer sacrifice for his own sins. Therefore, the weakness that the author is focusing on here is the weakness that comes because of sin. And that's a weakness in which Jesus did not share. In fact, if you go back to chapter 4, verse 15 that we've already referred to, we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but one that has been in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. And if you look at chapter 7, verses 26 and 27, the author there emphasizes that we have a high priest who did not have to make sacrifice for his own sins. For such a high priest became us, holy, guileless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. And so the author of Hebrews in chapter 5 is stressing the fact that a high priest can deal gently with his people because he shares their weakness. But the author goes on to consider the high priest of the Old Testament Levitical order as sharing the weakness that comes because of sin. Verse 3 says, and therefore he's bound to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. Christ did not share in our sinfulness. However, Christ doesn't need to share in our sinfulness in order to be compassionate toward us, in order to deal gently with us. As a fellow human, he fully experienced and was subject to temptation and to testing just as we are. But he overcame that, whereas we are overcome by it. Now, if Christ shared our defeat, you have to understand that his work would be of no use to us. It would be of no value, ultimately, to us. See, if someone says, well, Jesus can't understand what I'm going through because he's never sinned, then what you're going to say is, well, not only is, not that, not only is that not biblical reasoning, but if Jesus shared in your sin, if he shared in your defeat in order to sympathize with you, he couldn't be a successful high priest. His work would have no value. Sin can never be taken away by a sinner. 
that is a fundamental axiom of biblical theology. Sin can't be taken away by a sinner. That's why Jesus couldn't have sinned. The high priest of the Old Testament order may have sinned and had to offer sacrifices for their sins. But Jesus didn't need to, and yet he can sympathize with us. Notice in verse 3 that those who are described as being dealt with gently by the high priest are called ignorant and wayward, or erring. Ignorant and wayward. That is, those who sin unwittingly and those who sin willfully. Atonement is necessary for both kinds of sins, both those which are known and those which are unknown. I don't know how you respond to that thought of there being sins which are unknown, but that's frightening to me. It's something I'm uncomfortable with. Because when I try to ask God to forgive me for the sins of a particular day, and the Bible tells us we're supposed to try to enumerate our sins, to remember what we've done, to call it what God calls it, and to ask His forgiveness for it, I'm depressed enough just thinking about what I can remember and what I can isolate. That is, those things which I'm aware of. But the Bible says, in fact, there's a whole chapter of the Old Testament in Leviticus 4 that talks about atonement for unwitting sins. Sins done in ignorance. That doesn't mean sins done even though you don't know that the law told you not to do that. That's a misunderstanding. The ignorance is your ignorance of your having done it. Where you defile in one way or another, you transgress in one way or another, and you're not even conscious of doing it. You don't even stop to think about it. And there, there was an atonement that had to be made for that kind of sin. That tells you about human nature. It's not very flattering. It's bad enough if you remember, if you can... Uh, a list of things you've done that day but the Bible says there are plenty of sins you've committed without even thinking about it. The beautiful thing is we have a high priest who deals gently with us both with the ignorant and with the wayward. Now there's also a kind of sin according to the Old Testament that cannot be forgiven for which no sacrifice could be offered. You read of it in Numbers 15 and that's the sin that is um, amounts to a defiant renouncing of God's covenant through willful disobedience. The Hebrew expression is sinning with a raised hand or a high hand. To say, basically, you know, you clench your fist in the face of God and say, I'm going to do this and renounce, you know, your covenant altogether. For that, there can be no sin whatsoever. Interesting, that's not mentioned here. It's kind of between the lines you remember that when the author mentions a high priest dealing with ignorant and wayward sin, because the author is going to go on in chapter 6 and say, but there is no sacrifice for renouncing the covenant. And well, that'll probably take us a couple meetings to get through that. That's pretty important. Gail, you were going to say something. I was just going to say that in a way that uh, when God deals with Yeah, I think there is the encouragement that we mature in our Christian life. We not only come to know the law better, but we come to be more sensitive to our sins, so we don't do so many of them in ignorance. But remember, the in ignorance here doesn't mean in ignorance of the law. It means in ignorance of my transgression of the law at this or that point. Okay, so the high priest deals gently with all these things. Verse 4 now says, And no man takes the honor unto himself, but when he is called of God, even as was Aaron. The point is put negatively, no man selects himself to be a priest, and then positively, he must be called of God. You see, the priesthood is not a human institution, it's rather a divine vocation. It's a divine calling. 
not something men made up. It's not something that men can control. It's not something men can enter or leave on their own say-so. And this is very well illustrated, the author says, in the case of Aaron. If you look at Exodus 28, you see how Aaron was chosen by God and set apart. But Aaron is especially an apt illustration, not just because we remember he was chosen of God, but the Old Testament records for us a challenge to Aaron's status. In Hebrews 9, verse 4, there's a very passing reference to Aaron's rod which budded, or which sprouted. Now, I want someone to make my day. You remind me, why did Aaron's rod sprout? Why did it bud? That was miraculous. I mean, it was not a living, you know, stick at that point. It was taken away from... Okay, but what had happened previous to this? All the people? Oh, there's a famous name you've got to remember. Jude, what is it, verse 11, mentioned. The rebellion of Korah. K-O-R-A-H. I'm going to dwell on this for a few minutes because we need to learn that in our own myth in this day. The rebellion of Korah. Korah and a couple of other leaders with him came up and said, why is this Aaron guy so special? All of us are ordained of God. Moses said, is that so? Well, we'll take these rods and put them aside and we'll have God decide who's right on this matter. And Aaron's rod budded and that indicated God's choice of him. And so the people learned that Korah's dispute with Aaron's special place was not right. And Korah was consumed in the judgment of God in that day. And we are to remember that, that God ordains his leaders, and we are not to challenge their authority. Now, in our own congregation, we've had someone who for a number of years tried to challenge the authority of office in the church. And one of the passages I tried to point out to this young man on a number of occasions was particularly Jude 11 that warns against not having a proper attitude toward authority, lest we suffer as in the rebellion of Korah. And what was that all about? Challenging the idea that one should be set over us, that there should be an office of authority that not everyone has. It's crucial that we remember God sets apart the leaders of his people. Now, incidentally, this is really amazing from a historical standpoint. When the author wrote these words in Hebrew, there were priestly families in Jerusalem who were going about priestly service and uh, taking upon themselves the authority and function of priests, but they were not descendants of Aaron. Did you know that? The priests in Jerusalem at this time were people who had politically gained their, their jobs by going to Herod the Great to have their family made the priestly family. And what an abomination. And here the author of Hebrews reminds us, you can't do this sort of thing. You must be appointed of God. And there's, I think, an intended, you know, kind of under the table, you know, kicking of the, of the uh, Old Testament Jewish uh, the followers of Old Testament Judaism, because not only have they overlooked the priestly work of Christ, which, of course, is the major offense, but even on their own terms, they haven't got priests that are operating properly because they have people who, through political ambition and arrogance, assume their position rather than being appointed by God. Well, historical aside, having been made, what application can we make of this verse? Well, we're going to go on to make the most important application to Jesus Christ, but I'd like to make a, a further application to the question of uh, church government today. Our confession of faith does that. Confession of faith teaches us that a man cannot ordain himself. Man cannot choose to become a minister or a leader in the church on his own. 
Now, those of you who have any history in the Presbyterian Church will find that um, on, only so reasonable, of course, a man doesn't choose himself to become a minister. But if you haven't been in the Presbyterian Church for a long time, or even if you have, and you look around, you see, that is the predominant pattern in Christendom today. People graduate from a Bible school or college, they decide to go out and start their own church, right? And I will be the first to recognize that God works even through sinful human beings. He works through me, He works through you, we know that. God can strike a straight blow with a crooked stick. So these men who go out and do that, I don't deny that they preach and people are converted and that people can grow into their ministries and so forth. But that procedure is nevertheless wrong and it is sinful in God's eyes. You do not take that unto yourself. Ordained office comes from God and works through his church according to the directions Jesus gave the church. Ordained office is not something that any man can take unto himself. Yet we have men who are self-ordained all the time around us. <coughs> I think this also applies to those even within a Presbyterian structure who are greedy for ecclesiastical honors and who put themselves forward for recognition or for leadership. That's just not appropriate. You don't push yourself forward when it comes to leadership among God's people. That's something that God chooses and works in his own way to bring about. So this is a very valuable verse for us to remember. In our day, no man takes the honor unto himself, but when he is called of God, even as was Aaron. But of course, the main application, as we see it in verse 5, is to Christ. So then, Christ also glorified not himself to be made a high priest. So it is, the author says, that Christ did not exalt himself to be made the high priest, he did not confer this glory on himself, but was rather appointed by the Father. Turn to John 8.54. Compare that verse. John 8.54. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father that glorifieth me, of whom you say that he is your God. Jesus insisted, in fact, this is one of the clearest verses, but there are allusions to the same line of thought in many passages in John's Gospel. Jesus insisted he did not come and set himself forward as the Savior. He did not glorify himself. The Father sent him. He was only doing the will of the Father. The acceptance of his office as priest, therefore, did not mean self-glorification. And it didn't mean self-glorification for Jesus for two reasons. First of all, he did not assume it by his own choice. He came at the Father's direction. And secondly, for Jesus, becoming high priest didn't mean glory, did it? It meant bitter humiliation. What he assumed meant rejection, and agony, and sacrificial death. And so the author wants to make it clear, Jesus did not glorify himself to become high priest. Well, where is the divine appointment of Jesus as high priest? The divine calling of the Messiah, the Christ, is found prophetically, our author tells us, in two passages from the Psalms. Psalm 2-7, that's the first one quoted, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And then Psalm 110, verse 4, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So happens that these two psalms are real favorites of the author of Hebrews. If you study this book, you really get an insight. I mean, he really develops a lot of theology from them. Turn back to um, chapter 1, verse 5. You'll see how he uses Psalm 2-7 there as well. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Okay, so now he comes back to quoting that. He develops a lot of theology out of it. And then especially Psalm 110.4, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's uh, move ahead to chapter 5, verse 10. Again, the illusion, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In chapter 6, verse 20. Whither as a forerunner Jesus entered for us, having become a high priest, 
forever after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7, verse 1, for this Melchizedek king of Salem, and so forth. Uh, verse 11 of chapter 7, for if there were perfection through the Levitical priesthood, for under it, it half the people, for under it half the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek? Uh, verse 15, verse 17, verse 21 in chapter 7. So the author really rings out these passages for the theological content. He says, prophetically, they looked ahead to the Son of God becoming our high priest and our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He wants to bring together in close association the ideas of sonship and priesthood. Sonship means priesthood. And very interestingly, sonship connotes the idea of royal authority. So what he's bringing together is the idea of a kingly son and a priest into one idea. In chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, the same connection of ideas is found. Chapter 1, verse 2, hath at the end of these days spoken unto us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, who being the effulgence of his glory, the very image of his substance, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had made purification for sin, priestly, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, kingly. He spoke to us by a son who operated as a priest, making purification for sins, and sat down at the right hand of God as king. So you see how son, king, and priest are ideas that are woven together in the thinking of this office. Now, if those ideas, especially kingship and priesthood, come together in the office thinking, what better illustration could he find in the Old Testament than Melchizedek? Melchizedek was both king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. So we read in Genesis 14, verse 18. He was king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. Here we have a man who was both king and priest. Interestingly, as well, this was contrary to the contemporary Jewish idea of the Dead Sea community. The Qumran community out of the Dead Sea expected two messianic figures, a kingly messiah and a priestly messiah. Our author insists the messiah is one, king and priest together. And the model for that he finds in the Old Testament, and beautifully, a figure in the Old Testament who precedes the Aaronic priesthood, who precedes Levi in the Levitical order. The original priest is a king and a priest, and he is the foreshadow of Jesus Christ. Okay. Verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, having offered up prayers and supplications and strong crying and tears unto him, that was able to save him from death, and having been heard for his godly fear, though he was his son, yet learned obedience by the things which he suffered. In the days of his flesh. What is that referred to? the time of Christ's incarnate ministry. Remember John 1.14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So that time where the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, in the days of his flesh, it says here, he offered up prayers and supplications. It is true that throughout Christ's time on earth, his life was characterized by the custom of prayer. And I have some passages here that I'd better not have us turn to. But if you're taking notes, just look at Mark 1, 35, and Mark 6, 46, or Luke 5, 16, and Luke 6, 12. And of course, all of the 17th chapter of John. Jesus' life is characterized by prayer. Right. You may remember, the reason Judas knew where to find Jesus on the night he betrayed him is because he knew Jesus as a man of prayer. He knew where he would go and what he would be doing. Jesus repeatedly customarily engaged in prayer. But that's not what the author is referring to. He is referring to prayer on a particular occasion here. And how do you know that? Because he speaks here of prayer that was offered up with loud cries and tears. Prayer that was offered in a situation of extreme anguish 
we can tell you something further about that historical occasion. On this occasion that he offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears, it was unto him that was able to save him from death. That is, um, Jesus was immediately facing death, and it was a death from which God was able to save him. Now you tell me, what prayer is the author referring to of Jesus? What situation? Jim? That's right. That's right. In the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed with such intensity, Luke says he sweated as it were drops of blood. Angels of God had become to sustain him. He was so emotionally distraught in that prayer. It's an amazing story. And Jesus prayed, If it be possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That's what the author is referring to here. How Jesus prayed with anguish in the garden to one who could have delivered him from death. He faced the horror of a torment that is incomparable in all human experience. And I want to make very clear that the anguish was not due to his fear of painful execution. A lot of people have misunderstood that. Jesus did not ask to be delivered from this in the garden because he feared going to the cross, because he knew what, how painful it would be. I know how people can come to that conclusion, but upon reflection, I don't see how they can maintain it. Jesus was not that kind of person. In fact, everything we read in the Gospels points to a man who had utter um, temerity in the face of those sorts of things. Jesus was a very courageous individual. And the Bible says he set his face to go to Jerusalem and kept saying he would violently be put to death. He knew that. And he was not afraid of that. Why then the anguish? Why the torment over this cup of suffering that would be his? I think that you have to recognize the deeper agony that he was facing. And that was the prospect of divine judgment on him. He's the very son of God. Now, it frightens me to think of God's judgment being on me, and I'm a human being. How can the second member of the Trinity, who is God himself, contemplate God turning his back on him? I mean, like I said, this is incomparable to anything in human experience. The Bible says that he was taking judgment on him for sin, and it wasn't his own sin, it was ours. For the Lord made him to be sin for us, the one who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so what Jesus knew is that he was about to face the horror of what we call the second death. Revelation 20 verse 14 calls it that. The second death is hell, being separated from God. He knew that he was about to be separated from God. Remember the cry from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus knew he was going to come to that point. And that's what he asked. If this suffering could in any way be avoided, nevertheless, your will be done. He knew he was facing the dreadful curse of God. And now, this is amazing. I really, uh, this means a lot to me as I study this passage. Notice the author of Hebrews says, who in the days of his flesh, having offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him, who was able to save him from death, and having been heard for his godly fear, and he goes on. Very quickly the author says, and God answered that prayer. That prayer of Jesus, that he be saved from death, was answered. It says very explicitly, he was heard from death. God didn't ignore it. God didn't deny it. God granted it. How is it that the prayer of Christ to be delivered from death was heard? Well, certainly not that the cup of suffering be taken from him. That isn't the prayer that was heard. The prayer was heard that he be delivered from death inasmuch as God raised him from the dead on the third day. Jesus prayed to be delivered from death. And you notice he had to die 
that God could demonstrate that he would answer that prayer and deliver him from death. Because you see, God's way of delivering from death is not to avoid it, but to go right into the heart of it and defeat it. Isn't that beautiful? God answered Jesus' prayer in the resurrection, and that's what the author is referring to. And he was heard. He was raised from the dead. As Peter said in Acts 2, verse 24, it was impossible for death to hold him. He defeated death. In this, Christ exemplifies complete faith and confidence in God, uh, for which reason he could pray, if this cup might pass, let it do so, but your will be done. In 1 Peter 2, verse 23, Peter refers to Jesus commending himself or turning himself over to a faithful God. Jesus had utter confidence that God would take care of the matter because Jesus knew that God could raise the dead. That total dependence upon God, a God who has resurrection power, is the heart of true faith. And you know that because in Hebrews 11, verses 17 to 19, Abraham is set before us as our example, the father of the faithful. And what did Abraham do? He offered up Isaac, his son, realizing that God could raise the dead. That's how Abraham could obey God. You think about that. If you really believe that God can raise the dead, you could turn yourself over to him for anything. Because the worst that could happen to you if you obeyed him is that you'd die. But he can raise the dead. So Abraham, too, could obey God, knowing that he didn't know how God was going to fulfill the promise. Isaac was the only son that he had. And yet he was willing to offer Isaac, because even if Isaac ended up dying, maybe God would raise him from the dead. But Abraham, knowing that, obeyed God. And Paul tells us in uh, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9, that that is his confidence before God in the midst of reviling and persecution and so forth, that he follows a God who can raise the dead. Jesus knew God could raise the dead, and that's indeed how God answered Jesus' prayer to be delivered from death. Not that Jesus avoided it, but that Jesus could not be held by it. And then, coming back to Hebrews now, Hebrews 7 says, uh, He offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that is able to save him from death. And having been heard, there's the resurrection, but notice, having been heard for his godly fear. Why did God answer that prayer? Because of Jesus' godly fear. Actually, there's only one word in Greek that is translated godly fear. I bet your translations may have some variants of that very difficult to get an English equivalent to it. The word denotes not being scared of death, godly fear, being afraid of death. It refers to reverence, a very meticulous religious concern to honor God and not do anything displeasing to him. The same word will be found in Hebrews 12, verse 28, where I think it's worth reading Wherefore, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace whereby we may offer service well-pleasing to God with, my translation has reverence, but it's the same word as back here, with godly fear, if you will, and awe. And it's because Jesus exemplifies that godly fear that his prayer was heard. You realize that? God answers the prayers of the righteous. James 5, verse 16. The prayer of a righteous man avails much. And who's the example of that given in James? Elijah, who prayed that it wouldn't rain, prayed that it would. God heard him. You better believe that. Righteousness increases the likelihood of your prayers being answered. Now, does that sound like works to you? sound like a kind of a Roman Catholic legalistic system? Well, it might be taken that way. But you know why the prayers of the righteous are heard by God? The righteous know how to pray. They know what to pray for. The right spirit. They pray for the right things. The reason why so many of my prayers are not good prayers is because I don't pray for the right things. The Bible says we so often pray for things that we might consume them in our lust. We're selfish. We're self-centered. We don't pray properly. But if we learn to pray in a godly way, we pray for the right things, and our prayers would be answered. 
Elijah was that way. And Jesus was that way. That's why Jesus prayed about the cup passing, and yet your will be done. It's the proper attitude to prayer. And for his godly fear, it was answered. God does not answer our prayers in a kind of tit-for-tat way. He doesn't say, well, you've done so many good things this week, so I'm going to answer your prayer. You've kind of earned you know, so many brownie points, and here it is. That isn't what we mean here. But we do mean that godly people have availing prayers. And that should motivate you to change your life so that your prayers will become more effective. Well, verse 8. Though he was a son, yet learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Christ's godly fear was manifested in his obedience. He prayed, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But he didn't then get up and say, well, I'm not going to go through with it. He got up and he obeyed. He showed godly fear, submission to God. And so his godly fear is manifested in his obedience. And this obedience was achieved as a personal reality. It was learned, if you will, by means of persevering in God's will through what he suffered. That is to say, he learned obedience by obeying God to the point of death. That's what this verse means. Or as Philippians 2.8 puts it, this was an obedience unto death, even the death of the cross. You understand how Jesus learned obedience? Does that mean that he was ignorant of it before? No, learning here has the sense of making a personal reality in your life. He learned obedience, he confirmed obedience, if you will, through the things he suffered. This will help you understand it, I think. Often we are willing to obey God when it doesn't cost us anything, or relatively doesn't cost us anything. But you know when obedience is really tested, when it's really confirmed and is really learned in our lives, when it hurts, when it's tough, when it goes against the grain, when it's going to bring persecution or ridicule. In the crucible of suffering, true obedience is learned. That's what the author is saying. Jesus confirmed his righteousness, learned or made us a personal reality in his life. Obedience by being willing to persevere to the point of death. Therefore, obedience for Christ meant accepting the path of suffering, and not the suffering of painful correction for going astray. Later in Hebrews, the author will say, well, of course, every son that is loved by his father is corrected, he's, he's chastened. But that isn't what the author means here, that this son had to be chastened. It rather was the suffering involved in the conquest of sin, including going to the cross. And the astonishing thing about this learning of obedience in the school of suffering was that the one who so learned it was God's Son. Notice how the author says that. Though he was, my translation says, a son. That misses the point. Though he was the son, the Hebrew, I mean, the Greek says, though he, though he was son, there is no article at all. And though he was God's son, he still learned obedience in this way. That is, if anyone, you might think, would be exempted from having to go that route, it would be the son of God. And yet, though he had that dignity and that position, he still went the way of suffering, the suffering of the cross. And verse 9 says, And having been made perfect, you see, Christ was hereby made perfect. We've already read of this kind of remark in chapter 2, verse 10, which we have to look back at just briefly. For it became him for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory to make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. The author of our salvation was, quote, made perfect through suffering. The same idea now reoccurs in chapter 5, where we read, Having been made perfect, he became unto all them that obey him the author of eternal salvation. What is the perfection being referred to here? 
it's really not a difficult point, but because we aren't accustomed to thinking theologically, I'm afraid that will throw us off and say, well, Jesus was already perfect, wasn't he? No, he wasn't. Not in the sense spoken of here. Yes, he was morally perfect in the sense that he was blameless, but what kind of perfection did he lack in his human nature? Adam was created perfect, right? Morally perfect. And yet he wasn't perfect. Adam still needed to be perfected. How would Adam have been perfected? He would have been confirmed in righteousness if, through the assault of temptation, he had obeyed. Then God would have confirmed him in righteousness forever. And so Adam was sin-free at that time. He was without blemish. And yet he wasn't perfected through suffering, through temptation. He fell. But Jesus, the author here tells us, sustained his righteousness through temptation and through suffering. He retained his ethical integrity regardless of the assault upon it. And so he was perfected in a way Adam was not. And what we mean by that is that he was confirmed in his righteousness despite testing. Through testing, his righteousness was confirmed and that he didn't give it up. Question, Ron? Yes, we need that kind of righteousness imputed to us. That's where Adam failed and where Christ was obedient. By the way, you may remember Romans 5, through the disobedience of the one and through the obedience of one, many are made righteous. Yes, so his obedience is what gives us righteousness. Uh, chapter 2, verse 10, had spoken of Christ as the author of salvation, and now this verse speaks of him as the source of of eternal salvation. And the point that needs to be made, and because you know it so well, I've given it short shrift tonight, but it really is worthy of a long exposition, and that's that Christ alone is the source and the cause of man's salvation. We need to get that down. Christ. And Christ alone is the source of salvation. And that means salvation is completely of grace. It's not a, by what we do or what we decide. Salvation is of the Lord completely and wholly. It flows from His grace, His choice, His sovereignty, and His love. It does not come in any sense through our imagination, our hopes, our good wishes, our good works. Salvations of the Lord. He is the author and the source of eternal salvation. And yet the experience of salvation is only for those who obey Him. Hebrews 5.9 is devastating to to the theological notion so um, popular in our day that you can be saved even though you don't intend to obey the Bible. You can be a carnal Christian. You can just live unto yourself. But if you've, you've had this little decision card, if you've prayed the sinner's prayer, then God will accept you. That is not true. And it's a soul-damning doctrine, what the Puritans called carnal security. The fleshly idea that I'm all right with God when I'm not. Hebrews 5.9 says that he is the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Does that mean obedience is the ground of our salvation? Absolutely not. It doesn't say he's the author of eternal salvation because they obey him. After all, it's just said he's the author of the salvation. We aren't. It's not our good works. What this means is that the sign of continuous, genuine, living faith is obedience. Obedience isn't the ground, it's not the source of our salvation, it's the mark of our salvation. Those who trust God and are saved by His grace will be obedient people. And when you're not obedient, you have to ask very honestly whether you truly trust Him, whether you are saved. Remember that the readers of this epistle especially needed to be reminded that salvation is only for those who persevere in obedience to the Lord. Turn back to chapter 3, verse 12. Take heed, brethren, lest aptly there should be any of you, in any of you, an evil heart of unbelief and falling away from the living God. Or chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore give diligence to enter into that rest that no man fall after the same example of disobedience. The author is still sticking with his exhortation. Obey. 
persevere or you don't really have faith. You're not really saved. And then verse 10, to sum up very quickly, we've already got all these ideas down. The author tells us Christ was named of God. He did not take it upon himself. He was named of God a high priest, and therefore his work is that of atoning intercession for the people. And his high priesthood is not of the Levitical kind, but rather is after the order of Melchizedek. And in so doing, Christ fulfilled the prophecy of the Old Testament, the prophetic word of Psalm 110, verse 4. Okay, where are we going to go from here in our next lesson? You say, well, now we're going to hear more about the order of Melchizedek, right? We've got all this background that's been, you know, built up. Wrong. Now the author's going to take a chapter and a half and say, but I can't talk about that right now. He's going to come back to it. If you look at chapter 7, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high, who met Abraham, etc. So he's going to go on and talk about Melchizedek, but he's going to pause for a whole chapter and a portion, chapter and a half, let's call it, because he says, there's a reason why I can't talk to you immediately about Melchizedek. You're not ready for it. And you're not being ready for it worries me. But maybe you're about ready to fall into tradition. Don't miss the next lesson. And don't let anybody else at church miss it either. You tell them, boy, you better come hear this one. If you don't hear the rest of them, you better hear this one. Because we're going to get into some very heavy going here now. Where the author says, maybe, maybe, you better worry about what you really say. But that's for another day. Any questions about the lesson tonight, about the high priesthood, and how Jesus is our high priest? Yes? The high priesthood, the God ordained in the law a specific pattern for the high priesthood to pass from one person to another. It had to be within the house of Aaron, the oldest son, uh, a certain um, one of the sons of Aaron, and his line. And so there, there was a way of determining it according to the law itself. graduates from Bible school or seminary to become a minister is not to go out and say, hey, I'm going to start a church from scratch. Let's see how well I do. The proper way is to see if the church of God calls him to that task. That is to say, he is to work within the organized structure of the church on earth. He shouldn't go out and be a renegade, kind of a maverick sort of guy who just starts this independent church. He ought to, and I know this is going to sound like, you know, party spirit, and I don't mean it that way. He should become a Presbyterian. There's no other way around it. He should work with the elders of the church, and if they agree that he's got the training and the gifts and so forth, and if there's a congregation that wants to call him, then the Presbytery will uh, examine him. He'll be set apart and ordained by the Presbytery, or by the session if it's in a, a local setting. Uh, it's something that's done from above, that is the earthly... Jesus rules the church through his elders. And so Jesus and the Holy Spirit set people apart through the operations of the presbytery, or the local session, whichever it may be. And so this man should make himself available, should start working in the church, but he shouldn't go out and just take it upon himself and say, okay, now I'm the minister. The church decides who is a minister. Not the individual. On this particular point, well, I 
I, I think the appearance of all three forms of church government, independent, Presbyterian, and Episcopal, all three would um, be, you know, fair to them, would say they are trying to be obedient to the New Testament. Okay. But I think only Presbyterian is true to the New Testament. Now, having said that, however, on this point, first of all, those with Episcopalian form of government would agree completely with me. In fact, they go even further. They, they don't see that there is this interplay between congregation, the many, and then the oversight, the one, as we do in Presbyterians. An Episcopalian would say, if the bishop, or if you're a Roman Catholic, you know, the pope, or the cardinal, or whoever, if they decide that you should, you know, go into the ministry, it's all from above there. So they would agree, a man doesn't take it upon himself, but then their method of a man becoming a minister is different than ours. So they would agree with me to this extent, that no one should go out as a maverick and just say, I'm going to make myself a minister. And I will say that historically, most Baptists would also agree with that, although they're the furthest from having a system by which they can work it out. But even a Baptist, um, the better Baptist historically would say that a man doesn't go out and just make himself a minister, that the congregation calls him and sets him apart. The congregation's got to do that. However, in our day, Baptists have pretty much lost even their loose historical understanding of that, and the vast majority of churches that are being started in our day aren't even Baptistic. They are completely independent. Even Baptists will acknowledge associations of churches, and they'll have ordination councils and so forth. Then I don't think they work very effectively, uh, but it's kind of a shadow of a presbytery, if you will. But in our day and age, and you look at Orange County is notorious for this. Guys just come and they decide they're going to start a church like that. No oversight, no call from the people of God, no presbytery examination, no ordination. They just go into it. And I think that is unbiblical. And I think it's, it's one of the scandals of our day that the church has fallen into that kind of abuse. I, I could elaborate on and on, but it's getting late. We, we probably should close. And uh, Doug, would you lead us in a word of prayer?